Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Adventure Audio Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 2, featuring Bonnie Ford. Bonnie is a longtime journalist for ESPN, and she has covered the Tour de France amongst many other endurance sports. She has an existing relationship with Tyler. They go back many years to her coverage of the Tour de France while Tyler was competing there. And they uh, since became friends, and she covered a lot of the doping issues and those types of things and stories that happened within the tour, amongst many other things. Um, we really enjoyed chatting with Bonnie and hope to have her back soon. We talked about uh, the tour, her, her days with covering Tyler and some of his teammates, her love of paddle boarding, amongst a number of other things, and some really cool projects that she has coming up. We really hope that you enjoy this episode. As always, as we say in uh, at the top and the bottom of every episode, please write us a question if you have any. It's adventureaudiopodcast.gmail.com. We would love it if you're able to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, Adventure Audio. And once again, please uh, keep, keep spreading the word. We appreciate you listening, and uh, we'll be back again soon. Bonnie, this is my friend uh, Pete. On the other line. Hey, Pete. Bonnie, pleased to meet you. Thank you for joining us. Oh, look, I mean, Tyler and I have a long and interesting relationship, so yeah. there's no That's what problem he says. at all. Yeah. That's what he says. Pete's in uh, Calgary. I'm here in Missoula. And where do we find you today, Bonnie? Uh, I'm home in Philly, in the Philly oh. area. Awesome. Awesome. How is it back there? It's cold out here. It's not. It's so yesterday we had um, temps in the 20s. Yeah. And that for us is cold. And today it's I think we're in the 50s. And this weekend it's supposed to be crazy warm, like 60s. Oh, wow. You going to go paddleboarding? Ooh. We are thinking about it. Good for you. Yep. It might rain. We're pretty, you know. Generally speaking, we have mild weather through December, and so we have gone paddleboarding on Christmas, gone on New Year's, but then January it usually turns pretty cold. Yeah. And you can still get out there, but like the stakes of falling in the water are far higher at that point. Sure. So we don't usually. Plus, I <laughs> yes, like to do yeah. it barefoot. I am really a I'm a barefoot paddleboarder, and that gets not so fun when it gets cold yeah where where are you paddle boarding what like what body of water we have a family place on um a tributary of the chesapeake bay oh awesome yeah beautiful lucky so it's a yeah it's a juncture of what they call down there a creek which is actually a small river and then a river and the bay all kind of come together close to where we are. So there's all different environments to paddle, which is great. Awesome. Awesome. But definitely, definitely cold water at this time of year, right? Yes. Like not hypothermia cold quite yet, I don't think. But uh, and I don't want to sound arrogant. I don't capsize too often. <laughs> you know but again like it's just it's supposed to be fun and if your feet and your hands and your face are freezing it's just not as fun absolutely 
And that's that's a relatively new sport for you, right? Paddleboarding. You picked it up last maybe five years ago. That sounds right. Like um, we were very experienced kayakers, and and we enjoyed kayaking. And the waters around down in Maryland that I was just describing are also ideal for kayaking. But the only the problem with kayaking is your whole lower body is inert, and it's a great vantage point, you know, to see things. But I I really wanted to try paddleboarding, and Bob and I had talked about it. My husband and we have a kayak and paddleboard shop in town, and we were going to rent them. Well, next thing I know, I was way on a trip, and I came back, and Bob had bought two used paddleboards, and I was sort of pissed at him. I'm like, oh, I need to try this first before we spend this money, because they're not cheap. Yeah good ones and literally the first time i stepped on it i knew i had found my sport it was just i loved it yep it's your whole body's engaged um i'd done a lot of yoga so you know the balance part of it came pretty easily to me and I'm not, you know, I'm a very strong swimmer, so I didn't have fear when I got on it. And the waters around us are, there's a lot of shallows around us, so easy places to learn. But the, I find the main problem, and this is a little bit similar to cycling, I think, the main problem people have when they're learning is they're rigid. You know, they, yeah. they and, yeah. and they, they don't understand kind of the weight distribution, so... They tend to hunch over and, and lean forward, which is a recipe for falling. Sure. sure. Uh, and it, it helps to be uh, have a low center of gravity. I will say that it's definitely harder for taller people to to get comfortable on the board. But then once you have the hang of it, um, it's it is like riding a bicycle. You don't forget. Oh, that's great. That's great. That's very you, cool. Yeah, it, it's a it's a hard sport though. Um, so Bonnie, I've already heard Tyler's um, sort of recollection of you guys meeting in France uh, in the late '90s, but I'd love to hear your your version of uh, going over there and covering the teams. And I under, also understand that part of part of the um, part of your journalistic mission at that point was also to cover Christian Vandeveld to a degree, right? Because you guys were you, were, you were writing in Chicago and he's from there? Right. So I don't want to contradict Tyler. I think the first <laughs> opportunity that we would have had to meet would have been the postal training camp in 98 uh, in Ramona, right. California. I remember that. Okay. So the recollection around Christian is correct. Christian is from Lamont, Illinois, a Chicago suburb. And at some point, and I don't remember how this happened, we learned that Christian had signed with Postal. And we knew that Lance Armstrong was coming back with Postal from his uh, cancer, you know, his year that he took away from the sport to recover. And that was an interesting story on its face. Like 
it's hard to put ourselves back in that mindset. Lance Armstrong was not a household name then, but for people who followed endurance sport, that was just like, okay, what's going to happen? Is this guy really going to be able to compete at the elite level again? And it's an American team. And so it was an intriguing story. And with the local angle for, for us at the Chicago Tribune, it was not a hard sell to my editor. Says, hey, let me go out to this training camp and see what's happening. So I did. And Tyler might remember that the hotel or motel where the team was housed. Next to the Sizzler? The the Sizzler, exactly. So (laughs) it was the Ramona Inn. And I have a clear recollection that my room cost like 60 bucks a night. And it had brown shag carpeting. And this, the, what, remind me of the place, uh, Sizzler, right? Sizzler yeah. next door was where the team had their training table. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The good old days, Bonnie. So early <laughs> times, early stages for sure. Hey, yeah. Hey, Bonnie, did you cover that tour, the 98 tour? Was that your first one or was it 99? I did not cover the 98 tour. I was in France that summer. Uh, I was covering the 98 World Cup, Soccer World Cup, which was in France. But obviously, because I was in France, uh, it was a very interesting summer to be reading the French press. And I, I followed the tour through the newspapers and all of the events. And I remember seeing, you know, Bobby Julik landing on the podium and, but I was not that one visit to Ramona had really been my only contact with the sport in, in that period of time. So little did I know know, what was going to come next. For sure. And, and that was for people listening, that was the year of Festina, right? That's right. Yes. Right. So, so Marco, that broke on Marco the Pantani eve of the tour, tour, and he did. And um, it was sort of, you know, again, it's hard for me to reconstruct because I was also on another assignment at that time. But I just remember kind of this impression of chaos and, <laughs> oh, my God, and police raids and people yeah. getting arrested and and then seeing this kind of bike race limp to the finish. Exactly. Yeah, I was telling Pete, I, you know, I was in that tour and it was it was chaos. It was chaos. You know, you never knew what was going to happen. There were protests all the time. You know, one one day you're riding next to a guy. Next day you're watching him on television, you know, being interviewed while he's in jail, handcuffed and he's crying. Uh, yeah, every day was different. It was uh, it was uh, a tour like no other, really. And no one, no, no one really knew what was going to happen. And then teams randomly just pulling out of the tour and going home. It was crazy. I think there were only like 98 finishers that year out of 200. That sounds right. Yeah, yeah. But um, so that was absolutely bit- crazy. So you have, so now you have a peripheral view of all this stuff happening, and you go back the following year. There's the cancer comeback, and what what appears to be maybe a pretty strong American team, and. A, you know, a lot of optimism, like 
we, Tyler and I were trying to recall what the uh, what the organizers called that tour, but they had a little tagline on on it, which was you know, optimistic. Um, it was like the tour of renewal or or something along those lines. I don't know if you remember what it was, Bonnie, but. Okay, so I'm going to have to correct the timeline again, um, and don't expect oh, okay. you guys to have known this, but I that following summer, I was assigned to the Women's Soccer World Cup, which was in the United States, and so I was, that was a huge story. You may remember um, the Mia Hamm team and the sold-out stadiums, and it was really a thing, and I was quite busy with that, keeping one eye on the race, and when it became clear that Postal and Lance were going to win, and Christian was on that team, of course, too. My editors approached me and said, "You do you want to go?" And frankly, I was pretty beat from a month of running all over the country covering soccer. And I said, "Why don't you send someone else for the last few days?" And so Phil Hirsch actually went over and covered uh, the finish of that race for us for the Tribune. They did call it the Tour of Redemption. Oh, Redemption, that's it. And redemption, okay. I, I was, um, Redemption, I did do one story during that tour from the United States because I already had kind of gotten into the realm of covering doping cases. And when the famous or infamous uh, Cordo, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, cortisone cream bust so-called uh with lance when that happened i was asked to uh, help out with a news story um obviously the events as they were reported are not the events we later found out to be true but i was involved in covering that just kind of helping out with the news report on that that was it um but what that tour did in terms of american media was it ensured that papers like the Chicago Tribune were going to send people to the tour the following year in 2000. So I thought it, it was really interesting to me to hear you say that when you were answering a question about when your awareness of doping occurring really started to, sh- you know, it, it gradually slid from being, you know, you heard some rumors and didn't pay too much attention to it to going, you know, eventually going completely the other way to, to believing that, okay, there's just there's too much here to not believe it anymore, which is a really similar experience to what I think fans had, right? Where we, right. There, there was some whispers and we were like, ah, you know, uh, and, but it's slowly built and built and built. And, to, you know, for, for me and, and my friends and a lot of people who followed those tours, it was, it was when you started to hear about this, um, like some, some guys being basically subpoenaed to, it's like, you got to tell the truth or, or you could go to jail. And then, and then, people started getting slowly ticked off the list to the point where you just had to say, it doesn't matter who's confessing what now this obviously happened. Right. And you seem to have a similar arc to that realization. Um, that describes it to an extent. I would say that also as a sports writer, there's statistics, there's analytics. And so when, when you looked at slowly over those years, as more and more top riders either got busted or confessed or, you know, were otherwise linked to doping. And you began to understand the statistical improbability that um, any one guy could 
be dominant and be clean. So right. it was it was just math, you know, in the end. That yeah, like you can't have this many top finishers and all these grand tours be getting caught and uh, and have the other ones be clean. It just didn't make sense, right? It so and again, and that was an evolution too, because initially, as that evidence began to build, you still you and I'm using you in a in a large sense. There was no proof. Okay, so. Um, it was still a supposition and there was a resistance to wanting to believe that, you know, that uh, the deception had been that great, but again, came to a conclusion long before you could report what you thought. Uh, you can't, you can't, re- you have to report what you know, what you can prove or what someone credible says which is kind of the way things began to unravel yeah yeah definitely um, so you've had an interesting career bonnie you started out in what ann arbor michigan is that right i or did ann arbor news and then the detroit what was it i wrote down detroit news cleveland plain dealer chicago tribune mm-hmm. and now since what 2007 espn I began freelancing for them in 2005 and full-time in 2007. That's right. So 13 years now. Wow. You need to write a book. Well, (laughs) we'll see. Um, When you're, I mean, I, everyone says that when you write for a living, at least in my case, when I'm, you know, my, my idea of outside projects is not always about books. It's, it's about doing something that doesn't involve writing. Sure. Like paddle boarding, for yes. example. Yes, yes. Um, you've covered a lot of tennis over the years, right? I have. Some running. Um, yeah, are, I'm very attracted to endurance sport in general, actually. Right around the same time that I began covering cycling, um, I began getting very interested in, in marathon running, uh, in covering it. And I think I saw my first elite marathon in 1996. It was an Olympic trials actually. And obviously running had had this amazing golden, uh, era in the United States with Frank Shorters and Bill Rogers and Joe Benoit's of the world. Uh, and then, Results had fallen off a bit, and there was a lot of talk about how this was going to be revived. And and I just, I am not a runner, okay? I actually wrote an essay for an anthology that came out a couple years ago about learning to run a mile. I've always hated running. (laughs) I've got flat feet and bad knees and uh, a mental block, basically. So... I've always hated running and I have always been fascinated by people who can run long distances and the mindset that that takes and the fact that there are so many quote unquote normal people who do it, not just elite runners. Definitely. That's something that really fascinates us too. So the, and then I kind of, as I covered majors, the, the first major marathon that I covered 
let me see if this is right. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. It was the New York City Marathon in 2001, which was held two months after 9-11. And again, put yourself back in that time. We all were on edge about all kinds of things. There was a lot of discussion about whether to hold the race or not in that city for obvious reasons. And they elected to go ahead. It was very symbolic. It's like, we're not going to change our lives because of this. But there was real fear. Like runners talked to me about being at the start at the Staten, in Staten Island and being afraid to run over the bridge. Yeah. Uh, so that event, I get chills just thinking about it. It was yeah. so moving. So incredible to see people running in the streets of New York for joy and pleasure and accomplishment as opposed to the images we had seen just two months before people running away in fear and terror and shock. And that kind of hooked me, you know, the, the, so it wasn't just the elite component that I was interested in. I I'll be honest. I don't remember who won that race. Do not remember you. you, No idea. I probably didn't even mention that person in my story, but I will never forget seeing the masses come across the finish line. And people were so emotional. Many people were running for, you know, lost loved ones or for to fundraise. And I also I, and I wrote about this, too. I stood there and watched, and, and somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm going, all right, like some of these people I see finishing, they don't look like they're in such great shape, like they're fat. <laughs> or they don't look like runners. They don't look like my idea of runners. They look like pretty average people. And if they can do it, why can't I do it? And I, I had this sort of battle with myself for years about why am I not able to do this? Uh, meanwhile, I, I covered, you know, many major marathons, really, I've just always enjoyed that aspect. And uh, as Tyler knows, then my first Boston Marathon was 2013, which happened to be the year of the bombings. And that so was the that, first time you covered it? First time, yep. Oh, wow. I had always wanted to cover it. And for some reason, I never had been able to get there. I had covered New York and London and a uh, couple of Olympic marathons and Olympic trials. And so, yes, as fate would have it, uh, I was at the Boston Marathon that no one will ever forget and um, became kind of really emotionally fused to that event because of having been there. Um, so there's a lot of stories to be told about that. But you asked about what sports I enjoy covering, and I – for whatever reason, maybe because I can't imagine doing it here. I, you know, I covered cycling for 20 years, marathon running. And the other sport that I did a lot of work on in the early 2010s was open water swimming. Okay. And that's a, a fascinating little world as well. So it's a crazy sport. Yeah, it absolutely. is. Absolutely. And triathlon. I also got a lot of triathlon coverage. So what attracted you to covering endurance sports? Is it something about the personalities that are that are in it? I think so. And I think Tyler will understand what I'm talking about here. Endurance athletes, there's a lot of talk about sort of suffering and, and, and pain threshold and all that. And all that is true. But endurance athletes all have something else in common, and that is the ability to be in their own heads for long periods of time alone. 
I mean, so much training takes place alone. Yeah. Or even if you're with a small group, you're still sort of in your in your own head. And so not to be too flip about this, but folks who are drawn to those sports, I think, tend to be pretty interesting people. They, they because they have to be alone with themselves. And if they're boring people, they're going to be bored. You know, they're going to need more stimulation. Um, whereas when you get in a rhythm, when you're running or swimming or, or cycling, and of course you're watching around you and you're vigilant, but you also have this ability to kind of be on two planes and think about something else. You're writing a song or you're thinking about, you know, some issue in your life that you want to resolve or, um, you know, that they talk about runners high. I think about runners contemplation almost. Yeah. Cause you're not saying it's, ow, 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 every step, you know? So, uh, for that reason and swimming, uh, really is distance pool swimming is really the epitome of that because you are staring at a black line at the bottom oh. of the pool. For hours. I can't on hours. Yeah. Tough. You so don't even tough. have the visual stimulation of, of, you know, a runner or a cyclist who is at least hopefully, you know, looking at something pretty around them. Sure. It's a very meditative experience, though. Or it can be. Yes. Absolutely. Unfortunately, one I never had because I hate running so much. But you probably get it. If, how long do you paddleboard for, though? That probably exists in that world too yeah we you know it's all dependent on conditions because you really have to be able to read the water and read the weather if you're going out on a long paddleboard expedition obviously you're exposed you know the paddleboard itself is a flotation device but if if a, a storm comes up or, or the wind starts howling you don't have a lot of recourse, so you better be sure that the conditions are going to be good for the period of time that you're planning to be out. I have been caught in sort of small things, and I've never been in like a scary situation, but it just is not very fun to paddle into a roaring headwind. Oh, yeah. I can imagine. <laughs> so, but when the conditions are calm, I or we've been known to go out for two and three hours at a time. And it's a great, I talked about the vantage point of kayaking, which you're right up, you know, on the water. The vantage point of paddle boarding is you are walking on the water. Yeah. And so you're able to see beneath the surface of the water and see the, the vegetation and the, you know, life, the water life down there. And also, you have a really good perspective on the shoreline from where you're standing. <clears throat> so we spot all kinds of uh, birds and um, animals on the shore, but we also have become very attuned to the schools of fish that'll come, little bait fish that'll come and swim around us. Or we have a lot of skate in our waters, oh, Yeah. which the first time I saw them, I thought it was a shark. <laughs> I'm such an idiot. Oh, no. oh, <laughs> Because they flip up on their side and you see that fin and your oh, automatic yeah. reaction is jaws. Oh, no. Oh, um, yeah. Of course, it's irrational. They're quite a bit smaller than sharks. And we've even seen rays. There's a, a ray called a cow nose ray that 
inhabits the Chesapeake. And um, it's about a good three foot diameter ray. And it will come and sort of almost play with your board, like go underneath it. And uh, they're not threatening at all. So that's the meditative part of it is you're really, you're, you're quiet. You know, you're not making any noise because you have no motor and you are, you feel one with the surroundings. Oh, that's great. That's great. Good for you, Bonnie. Um, Hey, I was, so I was listening to the clean sport collective podcast a few weeks ago and which you did awesome. Great interview. Um, it, uh, you telling the story about Floyd and Floyd telling his mom for the first time about the doping man, that really just, uh, struck a chord, chord with me. And can you, can you share that? Can you start to shift gears a little bit, but, um, yeah, that was something that I, uh, I don't know. I thought maybe our listeners would like to hear about. Well, the story I told was that when, um, in May 2010, when Floyd Landis, who had already sent a bunch of uh, incriminating emails out to various officials about doping in the sport, um, he had not actually spoken to anyone in the media, and he and I had a good relationship. I think he felt yeah. that I had treated him fairly through his doping case and, and covered the case fairly, even though, again, we all know sort of what the, um, the that there was some distortion and, and deception in that case. But on the other hand, honestly, to this day, I will say that there were some good points made about the fallacies of the anti-doping system in that case. It turned out they were completely irrelevant, you know, to the fact that Floyd lied. But um, be that as it may, you know, I, I, I had a good relationship. I had sort of kept up with Floyd in those lost years when he came back unsuccessfully. And so he elected to give me the first interview that he gave on the subject. And, but he said to me on the phone, I have to call my mother first. And I understood completely, you know, what he was saying and to turn the conversation sort of more towards um, what you're familiar with, Tyler, you know that, I mean, back in those early days in Girona, when I would come over to Spain and, and make the rounds and talk to all the guys that were training there, it's a very different experience than when you are covering baseball or football or basketball or some other professional sport in that I was in your homes, you know, I was meeting your, your families. I was petting your dogs. I was, there's an intimacy there that doesn't exist in, in other sports. And even it didn't mean that I knew what was going on under the surface, but it did mean that I knew more about your personal dynamics and lives than, than I have in, with athletes in a lot of other sports. So when the stories really started to roll out about the double lives that people were leading, clearly they involved people's families. 
they involved the people's, you know, and Tyler, you wrote about this in your book very, very movingly about, you know, what your then wife Haven um, and you went through as a couple. And so there were others, you know, who who chose to conceal things from their spouses. Um, I don't know anyone who told their parents the truth until they had to. And and I'm sure that was one of the roughest roads of all for for all these folks um, who wants to disappoint their parents. Yeah. Yeah, well, certainly was for me. So, when, you know, when I heard that on the Clean Sport Collective, it, yeah, you know, it's it's struck a chord with names as well. You know, so, and I'm sure there are many, many stories like that with people who have come out you know, with the truth. Um, yeah. And yeah, Bonnie, you are always just a very fair journalist. And, you know, I hated when you'd come over and interview us. I hated when I'd have to, when you, the subject of doping would come up, I hated that I had to lie to you and write to your face. And I'm sorry I had to do that. Uh, Tyler, this is like, now we've been through this before. I know, we've been through it, we've been through it, but I'll say it again, you know. I, you know, at the time, but at the time it was, you know, I was kind of at a at a dead end street, so there weren't many options. That and I will give for the benefit of your listeners my stock answer, which is number one: when you're a journalist, being lied to is an occupational hazard in all fields, not just sports. Number two, yeah. Yeah. I never took it personally. I, you know, I knew that. Uh, the lies that were being told or the lies that I suspected were being told were being told to everyone. And um, my only choice in that situation was to keep asking you the same question and keep getting your answer on the record and hoping that someday, you know, there would be more honesty and truth out there. But that that had to wait or it did wait. I shouldn't say it had to wait because none of us had guns to our heads. But um that was just the way it was. And, and, you know, Floyd has said similar things to me. Levi said similar things to me. There's, and, and I've said the same thing to all of them is that it was not, it was a, it was a business. Um, I understood, I didn't condone it, but I understood what was going on. And at a certain point, um, all I could do was hope that you guys would find your way out of that. And cause I, I could tell, especially in your case, how much it was affecting you personally. And um, I just am glad that some of you, most of you that I knew back then have started second acts that are different and and better. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, Pete, what do you got? What does uh, what does 2020 have in store for you, Bonnie? What are you covering this year? Um, and also, before we let you go, we'd also love for you to tell us how people can follow your follow your stuff. Where can they read you? Where can they find you? And uh, what's coming up? I am working on um, with the 30 for 30 podcast team at the moment, and yeah. I had my first uh, episode launch in November. It's a standalone episode. It's called Out of the Woods. Uh, it's about a story from the 80s that um, I had vaguely remembered, but uh, got really immersed in of a world-class biathlete named Carrie Swenson, who was kidnapped 
on a training run in the woods in Montana near Big Sky and uh, was shot and uh, left for dead and survived that experience. And my interest in that story was not just the fact that Kerry was an athlete who did later go back to competition and went to world championships and uh, was able to sort of to recover from her physical injuries. But I was interested in, in the path of a long-term survivor of trauma and what that's like after the bright lights go out and all the sensational headlines go away. There you are um, living your life, facing the same challenges that we all face, but with this extra burden of PTSD and, and all of the things that ensue after you've been through a traumatic or violent crime uh, experience. And Carrie, I'm very, very honored that Carrie chose to share her story with us. I'm very proud of that piece. You can find that piece on the 30 for 30 podcast site. Yeah, it's a Google it. incredible story. And um, I'm currently at work on another project that uh, I don't want to go into detail in, on right now, but it'll be launching in the spring. And okay. uh, in the meantime, I'm not doing a lot of writing. Because this uh, doing audio documentaries is every bit as consuming as, as a film. And so I'm kind of full-time devoted to that right now. Okay. Yeah, no, very cool. I love the whole, the, the 30 for 30 um, shows are amazing. So now I'm going to get into this into this world of podcasts, too. That sounds like a pretty chilling story, but definitely one worth, worth listening to. Well, it is, I really, um, I don't. I'm not a very good self-promoter, but I am really proud of this piece. Uh, the producer on the piece, Mitra Kaboli, is a sound design genius. Uh, so the piece is just, it's, it's sensitive, it's elegant in, in, in its presentation and dignified, which is what Carrie wanted. You know, she didn't just want to rehash the incident. She wanted it to have relevance to others who have been through traumatic experiences to listen and literally hear her voice in her late fifties saying, I'm okay now, you know, and, and uh, yes, of course there are still reminders, but um, I have joy in my life. I still love the outdoors. She's always out hiking and skiing and horseback riding. So um, yes, I would recommend that you find it on the ESPN 30 for 30 podcast site. We will do that. We're going to put that in our show notes, too, so that people can track it down. Find an article archive just by Googling you, right? Yes, that's right. There you go. Awesome. Thank you, Bonnie. We really appreciate you chatting. Thank you, guys. And uh, thank you guys so much. It's been a pleasure being with you. Oh, our pleasure, Bonnie. Thank you so much. We hope we can do it again. Yeah, thanks, Bonnie. Great to see your face. Um, awesome talking to you. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Thank you again, everybody, for tuning into the show. And another huge thank you to Bonnie Ford for joining us. What a fascinating career that she's had. Um, the coverage of the Tour de France at the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013 when that happened. There's a whole lot more to discuss with Bonnie, and we'd love to have her back on the show. Again, thank you, everybody, who's been subscribing, who's been giving us positive reviews, who's been spreading the word, following us on social media, helping us grow the show. We really appreciate it. And uh, we have another really exciting episode coming up 
again next week. So people who are into the techier side of uh, cycling are really going to want to catch the next show. Thanks again.